Uh, I'm really rather shocked by how little the world thinks it appropriate to investigate this. I've had uh, senior scientists say to me, it's very important we don't find out because the effect on the reputation of science, the effect on relations with China could be very serious. I think that's really shocking. Coming up on British Thought Leaders, I sit down with Matt Ridley, science writer, journalist and member of the House of Lords. Matt's latest book is about the origin of COVID-19 and the obstacles he faced in exploring the cause of the virus. The reason it's not happening is because the Chinese government uh, has decided not to be transparent about it. Uh, they have, um, uh, on the whole, made it very difficult for people to find out what has gone on, uh, refused to provide information that would be quite normal in any other, if this lab accident had happened in any other country. Matt discusses the ethics of scientists working safely with highly dangerous and highly infectious viruses. I'm generally not a pro-regulation person. I think that, that too much regulation stifles initiative and creates barriers to entry and makes it difficult to innovate and so on, and that we need to be very careful how we, we, we regulate. But I do not take the extreme libertarian view that we should just let scientists do what the hell they feel like just so they can produce a high-impact paper um, at the risk of exposing the rest of us to a new virus. I'm Lee Hall and this is British Thought Leaders. Matt Ridley, thank you for joining us on British Thought Leaders. Thank you for having me. It's your book, uh, Viral. Can you tell us a bit about it and what inspired you to write it? Yeah, well, uh, if you recall, uh, at the beginning of 2020, the world was hit by a pandemic caused by a virus. Um, I wanted to find out where it came from, where, what was the story of the origin of the virus. And at first it seemed quite simple, that it was one of these cases where people had been eating something and it picked up a, a virus from a bat that had somehow been transferred by another species. But the more I looked into it, the more it became clear that that story wasn't adding up and that an alternative possibility, namely that it was because there was a laboratory in the city where it started, Wuhan, which was studying bat coronaviruses uh, and more than anywhere else in the world, that that might need to be investigated. And I eventually got uh, further into this subject and uncovered a, a series of uh, fascinating but rather disturbing details. And I teamed up with a brilliant scientist from Harvard called uh, uh, Alina Chan, and we decided to uh, put a book together of all the evidence pointing in both directions and see where it led us. How confident are you that we will find the origin of the virus? I'm fairly confident we will. It may take a long time. There was a case in the Soviet Union in the 1970s, 1979, when there was a, uh, an anthrax leak that killed 65 people. Uh, and for about 10 years, the Soviet Union, Soviet government managed to uh, tell the world that no, 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 there was nothing to worry about here. But eventually the truth did come out. Uh, I think there are enough people who probably know enough to be able to tell us what did happen, and eventually they'll get a chance to tell us. Hmm. You talk a bit about these high security labs in your book. I wondered if you could give us some background on them. Yeah. So there's a bunch of labs around the world that study viruses, um, more and more of them. Um, and uh, in Wuhan in particular, there is the Wuhan Institute of Virology, which is sort of China's leading virology institute. The first one to build a biosafety level four lab and so on, which opened in 2019. But they made a particular 
focus of looking for the origin of SARS, the original SARS, the one that happened in 2002-03. And they tracked it down to bats. They tracked it down to bats in a particular part of Yunnan in southwest China, a long way from Wuhan. Uh, And they got more and more interested in studying these SARS-like viruses, the ones they found in bats, uh, and sequencing their genomes, but also manipulating them. And they picked up uh, some techniques developed by a man named Ralph Barrick at the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill, uh, which enabled them to um, basically recreate viruses from uh, the sequence uh, that that they could detect and combine and recombine different parts of different viruses to come up with chimeras or hybrids uh, and test those on human cells, human airway epithelial cells taken from the lung, but also on humanized mice, that is to say mice with particular human genes. And they were doing some of these experiments at biosafety level two, which is not much more than wearing a mask and gloves. And that we now know was probably not a safe thing to be doing. So they did a whole string of these experiments, and in one case they raised the infectivity of the virus by combining different parts of different viruses together. They made one that was 10,000 times more infectious than uh, either of its parents. Um, So there were risky experiments going on, and it was the leading place in the world for studying SARS-like bat coronaviruses, and they weren't finding them locally. They had to go and get them from a long way away. And that's one of the reasons why for it to start in Wuhan, this pandemic, is really quite suspicious. It feels quite dangerous to be working on these highly infectious viruses, particularly in a city, a crowded city. Why do they do it that way? Well, in the case of SARS, the first SARS, in 2003-04, there were six or seven occasions on which researchers were working on them in labs and got infected. Uh, the, the, The virus leaked. Um, uh, once in Singapore, once in Taiwan, and four times in Beijing, at least. Now, in all of those cases except one, they didn't know how the researcher got infected. SARS is not that infectious. It's not that easy to catch. SARS-CoV-2 is very easy to catch. So if a virus like SARS-CoV-2 was being experimented on in the lab, then a researcher almost certainly would have got a sniffle and probably wouldn't have noticed it and probably would have gone you know, about his his or her daily business and gone to the market, gone to the shops and so on, uh, and could well have started a pandemic before anybody knew what was happening. So yes, it is a risky thing to have been doing. Um, They were um, very careful when they were dealing with SARS, but when they were dealing with viruses taken from bats, even after they'd manipulated them in the lab and grown them in human cells, they regarded them as relatively low risk because they thought these are bat viruses, not human viruses. Now, I suspect that turns out to have been a mistaken idea. This idea of the lab leak theory started out as something of a conspiracy theory, if you like, but over time it just became more and more mainstream. What is it that drove that change? Well, I'm an example of that. At the beginning of the pandemic, I was asked by a number of colleagues in Parliament and elsewhere if it was possible that this had started with a lab leak. And I said, no, it didn't. And the reason I know it didn't is because Uh, I've seen a paper published by some Western virologists saying uh, we can rule that out, and I haven't quite followed their arguments, haven't gone into it in detail, but these guys seem to know what they're talking about. Um, I then saw more and more evidence that suggested that they didn't know what they were talking about, that one of the things they had, some of the reasons they'd given just didn't add up, 
and that meanwhile evidence had come forward from the Chinese authorities that it didn't start in that seafood market. So I began to change my mind and at least take the lab leak seriously. It wasn't until 2021 that the world really did the same uh, when a, a group of about 30 scientists sent a letter to Science magazine saying we need to take this possibility seriously. And since then, there has been a lively debate between those who think it's possible, perhaps even probable, that it came from the laboratory, and those who think we can rule it out already. Now, I'm not in the camp that says it definitely came out of the laboratory, but I am in the camp that says it could easily have done, and we need to investigate that possibility very extensively. And it's not still not really happening. You know, the World Health Organization and other organizations have not really dug into this properly. On that issue, um, if a train derails or a building collapses, there's a big investigation. You know, why did this happen? What can we do better? This virus killed millions of people and affected pretty much everyone. Do you feel the level of investigation is fitting? Uh, I'm really rather shocked by how little the world thinks it appropriate to investigate this. I've had uh, senior scientists say to me, it's very important we don't find out because the effect on the reputation of science, the effect on relations with China, could be very serious. I think that's really shocking. You know, an airliner was shot down over uh, Crimea, uh, you remember, in 2014, um, a Dutch airliner with two or 300 people on board. The world didn't say, we better not find out who did this in case it annoys Vladimir Putin. We said, come on, we need to know what happened here. And KLM and others were involved in a massive international investigation which concluded that, yes, it had been shot down by a missile. Um, now, that was a couple of hundred people. As you say, we're talking of, well, certainly 6 million and some people say 20 million people who've died uh, as a result of this pandemic. And all of us who've had our lives turned upside down and an awful lot of health and other problems created by lockdowns and other reactions to the pandemic. Um, so it's absolutely vital that the world takes the investigation of the, the origin of this pandemic seriously so that we know how to stop it happening again, so that we can deter bad actors, rogue states and terrorists, from thinking that this is a weapon they might use in the future, and so on. Why isn't the world doing that? Well, the reason it's not happening is because the Chinese government uh, has decided not to be transparent about it. Uh, they have, um, uh, on the whole, made it very difficult for people to find out what has gone on, uh, refused to provide information that would be quite normal in any other, if this lab accident had happened in any other country. Who were the scientists? What were they working on? Uh, what were their lab logs saying? What is their safety record? Um, what experiments were they doing? Or in the case of, well, if it wasn't the lab, well, which animals have you looked at in the market, etc., etc. Now, they've told us some of that. But, for example, they've still divulged, even to the World Health Organization, no information about the cases in November of 2019. They talk about the cases that happened in December of 2019 and January 2020 as being the first cases. But we know from a leak to the South China Morning Post and the leak of a scientific paper that there were a, a, about a dozen cases that they knew of that happened in November 2019. And there were probably other cases in October or November of 2019. Now, they won't divulge the name, well, they, we don't need to know the names of these people, but the, the, the um, occupations, the locations of the people who caught that 
virus in November 2019. If they were lab workers, that would be quite interesting. So is it, do you think it's a saving face thing that they won't reveal this? I think there is a culture of secrecy in China of not uh, collaborating with the rest of the world on things like that, of regarding it as impertinent of the rest of us to ask. But we're all in this together. We all got the virus. So I think we all have a, a right to know what happened, whether we're Chinese or, or, or not. Um, uh, I think there is also a worry about the West weaponizing the information that uh, it might have started, for example, in a laboratory and demanding reparations or putting sanctions on China. I personally don't think that's the way it would go. I think it, it should result in a, a good conversation internationally about tightening up biosafety standards in laboratories worldwide, whether this happened this way or not, because there is very little um, international oversight of, of these laboratories. Uh, and getting everyone to agree on a treaty about how to uh, make sure we don't do risky things with viruses. The director of the FBI accused the Chinese of doing their best to thwart and obfuscate attempts to find the origins of the virus. Um, I assume you agree with that, but how much has politics kind of interfered with your work to, to bring out a book like this? Well, just to give you one example of, of thwarting uh, investigation, there is a database uh, it has 22,000 entries in it. Uh, it uh, contains a, a, a list of all the viruses that that lab has collected in the wild from bats over the years, uh, and all the details about them, including their genetic sequences, where they've been sequenced, uh, and other information uh, about them. Um, that We know that that database existed. We know the size, the scale of it, because there was uh, open um, information about summarizing what was in it, but the details of what was in it was password protected. On the 12th of September 2019, that is to say two months before the pandemic began as far as we can tell, uh, it went offline, that database, and has never been brought back online. And we have asked repeatedly, as have other people, please can we see what's in that database? Because if it doesn't contain any virus related to SARS-CoV-2, then it exonerates the lab pretty well. Uh, so they ought to be rushing it out there. Now, the reason they give for not sharing that database uh, is because they say you might hack it. Well, I don't understand that. How can you hack something that's been shared? You know, once it's been shared, you, you don't hack it. You don't need to. It's a meaningless remark. So uh, I'm afraid that makes us very suspicious. As for the politics of uh, taking on this subject, um, yeah, I'm just a science writer. Uh, my colleague is a young and brilliant scientist, uh, my co-author, Alina Chan, um, at Harvard. And uh, the two of us are subject to some pretty vile um, uh, attacks, uh, some of it originating within China, some of it very explicit. The Chinese state media has carried articles about what a disgraceful person I am, which, of course, I am, but not in the way they accuse me of. Um, uh, and and so you know it, it, it yeah it's it's not been easy uh, and um, there is very clearly here in the West too a great reluctance particularly in the scientific community to tackle this topic and I think that's rather worrying because it shows the degree to which people are worried about future collaborations with China worried about Chinese funding for institutions. Um, uh, and worried about the, the reputation of science if it comes out that this was a mistake made within science. Well, I think truth is more important than consequence. 
There's also been very little public criticism of China. Why, why do you think that is? Well, people are now criticising China much more uh, over the Uyghurs and over Hong Kong than they did. But I think this could be an even bigger reason to uh, at least challenge China. I'm, I was a huge fan of China. I went there uh, with open eyes and enjoyed my visit, was very impressed by what was going on 10 years ago. Uh, and when we were in Britain trying to build a good relationship with them, again, about 10 years ago, uh, I thought that was a good thing. Um, I didn't realize the degree to which Xi Jinping is a different kind of creature from his predecessors. Uh, and that he really doesn't believe in the uh, uh, idea of a relatively liberal and free market economy, even while the Communist Party runs the politics, um, the compromise that Deng Xiaoping uh, imposed, if you like. Uh, and so it dawned on me slowly, um, around the time I began investigating this topic, that we really were de dealing with a very different kind of regime than we were um, uh, 10 years ago. I think an awful lot of the West hasn't woken up to that yet. The US Energy Department said the virus most likely came from a lab, and then the Senate and the FBI backed them up on that. It must have felt like at least a small victory on your part to hear those things. Well, we, as I say, we haven't come to a definitive conclusion that it definitely came from the lab. We just keep saying we must investigate because it's a strong possibility. Uh, but it is good to see some public institutions in the US Department of Energy, which runs a lot of their big labs, including uh, biotech ones, so it's of great relevance here. Uh, the uh, FBI uh, and various aspects of the Senate have come out with strongly worded reports saying this needs to be taken seriously, uh, and they think it's probable now. They think with moderate or low confidence that it is probably what happened. And that's probably not very different from me. As I say, I don't know what happened. I don't have confidence in anything. But I do think it's, it's a strong likelihood that it came from a lab. And I think we need to push further on and find out much more about what happened. There's quite a lot of information in the West that we could still find out. I mean, we're finding out things all the time that's coming out from uh, the correspondence of scientists, the, the, the interactions they had with China and so on, that are useful information. How much is this stuff still going on? Because as a kind of non-science person, we don't hear that much about the origins of COVID anymore. Is there still a, a community that's digging into this? Uh, very much so. Um, there's new revelations pretty well every day, um, most of them minor. Um, but for example, yesterday, Senator Rubio produced a report which um, uh, goes into significant detail about this. Um, there's other people who are um, uh, putting in freedom of information requests, digging into information, uh, going through um, you know, satellite data from how, park, how, how full car parks were at hospitals in November 2019, things like that, you know, that could, could possibly shed light on it. Um, there's information uh, about um, similar viruses coming out. Just a few weeks ago, there was a, a, the, the discovery of evidence that an experiment was done uh, on a, uh, a virus that has never been published before. Now, it isn't a SARS-like virus, it's a MERS-like virus, so it's not the experiment that was related to this, but it rather shoots down one of their defences, which is, don't worry, we've published everything we've ever done. Well, it turns out that's not the case. There are still, as it were, experiments that haven't been shown to the world uh, going on in that lab. The one thing that really interests me when I was reading your book was the role of uh, ordinary people or armchair investigators, people on Twitter, in furthering the lab leak theory. Could you talk to us a bit about that? 
Yes, I think this is one of the most fascinating aspects of the story. Frankly, the mainstream scientists haven't done a very good job of investigating this at all, nor have most mainstream journalists. Um, <coughs> uh, and frankly, the espionage community hasn't particularly uh, done a great job either. At least they haven't revealed it if they have. Uh, so it's been left to some very interesting, enthusiastic, individual amateurs to to reveal some really quite vital information. There's a young man in India who goes by the name of the Seeker who managed to get the login details for certain Chinese um, uh, websites and download some medical and uh, scientific theses that detailed the experiments that went on in Wuhan and detailed the investigation into a, an incident in 2013 when Three people died of a virus that looked very like this in a mine shaft where the closest relative to this virus was found, um, and so on. Uh, and so he did an extraordinary job of, of finding out stuff that, we, that was absolutely indispensable. Then there's a guy called Francisco Ribera in Spain who uh, is a um, highly intelligent amateur. He's not got a background in science at all, uh, but he knows how to put together databases. And he basically um, made a gigantic Excel spreadsheet uh, and populated it with information about every virus that had been collected by the uh, scientists in Wuhan, which he could find from very obscure bits of information buried in scientific papers or in gen genome databases and so on. And he was able to piece together exactly which cave um, each virus was collected from, by which scientist, on which date. Uh, and able to put together an extraordinary database of that. Uh, that turned out to be very informative, and that turned up, for example, that there were eight viruses they hadn't told about, told us about, which were very closely related to SARS-CoV-2, that they had collected in 2015 from the same mine shaft where the, the three men had died. And so that was published on Twitter. Some of us took up the case and said, please, can you tell us about these eight viruses? Mm. The, the team from Wuhan then submitted a, 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 an addendum to their scientific paper in Nature saying, oh, by the way, there were eight other viruses that we didn't tell you about. Well, thanks for telling us. So it's a thoroughly um, modern story, really, to hear something like that. Even 20 years ago, there's no way you can have this kind of team of unknown people sitting at home really helping in an investigation in that way. Well... Uh, I think it's a really interesting example of what you might call citizen science, about people can contribute to these things uh, and uh, without necessarily um, being experts in the topic. Now, there are other people trying to contribute who make terrible mistakes or who get the science wrong or something like that. You know, there's plenty of, uh, of um, less good contributors out there. But I, it is one of the fascinating aspects of this story that, that where the professional scientists and journalists have let us down, the amateurs have stepped into the breach, unpaid, and done some spectacular work. I've mentioned two of them, but there's about 10 others I could mention. Moving forward, what do you think are the most important changes we need to see in terms of viruses and pandemic planning and things like that? Well, I think um, we need to uh, tighten up laboratory safety worldwide. Whether this virus happened by this way or not, it could have done. Uh, there are experiments that we've found out about that happened in Wuhan and others that happened elsewhere in the world that really shouldn't be going on. 
Um, these are so-called gain-of-function research of concern. Not all gain-of-function is wrong, some of it is valuable, but the idea that you need to do these experiments to develop vaccines or something like that is simply wrong. There are much safer, safer ways of getting the information that comes from these experiments. And the thing we need is for the world to agree to tighten standards about what happens in these laboratories. To say, look, biotechnology is great, let's go on doing this, let's work with safe things like uh, bacterial artificial chromosomes or pseudoviruses, but let's, when we're using live viruses that could infect human beings in a laboratory, let's only do it in a remote location with quarantine for the scientists before and after the experiment um, so that we know that no accident is going to happen. Something like that is what's needed. Now, if you won't sign up to that as, a, as another country, then we're not going to do a deal with you. We're going to uh, make it difficult for you to publish your science, etc., etc. That's the kind of regulation that, frankly, we did in the airline industry a generation ago, where everybody everywhere in the world agrees to share information from every accident so that there's everything is a learning experience. Um, uh, uh, and that, frankly, we already do on ethics. We say, look, if you're doing unethical experiments on people or animals, we're not going to publish your results. We're not going to invite you to scientific meetings, etc. You know, there was a guy in China cloned a human being, if you remember, about seven or eight years ago. Um, uh, the world went, whoa, that's not on. And the Chinese then took action. He went to uh, uh, jail and so on. Um, why aren't we, if we're doing that for ethics, why aren't we doing that for safety? Because when you think about it, Biosafety doesn't just affect the scientist who drops a test tube or pricks a, a hole in his glove. If he gets infected, then he could infect all of us. So we're all taking that risk on behalf of uh, him. The measures you've listed there feel very much like common sense. It's hard to believe they're not already in place. What, what's blocking them? Well, there has been a strong tendency uh, in science to react, even now the pandemic has been going for three years, and say, we know what we're doing, we're the only people who should be regulating ourselves. Um, uh, and to do otherwise, to impose new rules on us, is to accuse us of something we didn't do. And of course, in most cases, they didn't do anything wrong. But there is a strong history of lab leaks. Alison Young has written a new book detailing ones mostly in America and you know over a four-year period there was something like a thousand accidents in high security virus laboratories. Very few of them led to serious consequences but there were cases in which the researcher uh, was potentially infected with a very very dangerous novel virus new to the human species and was sent home. It was not quarantined and could have given it to his family or something. It turned out that they weren't infected. But um, uh, that's, you know, there is a, the, the, I'm generally not a pro-regulation person. I think that, that too much regulation stifles initiative and creates barriers to entry and makes it difficult to innovate and so on, and that we need to be very careful how we, we, we regulate. But I do not take the extreme libertarian view that we should just let scientists do what the hell they feel like, just so that they can produce a high-impact paper um, at the risk of exposing the rest of us to a new virus. The pandemic saw increased public scrutiny in the role science plays in protecting our health. 
uh, and even polarised views to some degrees on this. What can we do to restore the public confidence in science, uh, health science particularly? I think science needs to remind itself that it's not about certainty, it's not dogma. Science is a conversation about how the world works. And on things like whether masks work, whether lockdowns were effective, etc., um, there needs to be an honest and frank conversation. There's some evidence either way. It's, we're grown-ups. Uh, science needs to treat uh, ordinary people as capable of engaging in conversations like that. And I think the same about the origin of the virus. This is not a question where we want scientists to just make up their mind behind closed doors and then tell us sort of biblical truth, this is what happened, and you're not to question it. I hate the phrase, the science. There is no such thing as the science. Science is always a little bit uncertain, sometimes very uncertain, about what happens and what did happen. Uh, and it needs to share that uncertainty, that doubt, with the world much more. And that way it'll get regain trust. Well, Ridley, thank you for joining us on British Thought Leaders. Thank you.